G'day everyone and welcome to another episode of Yarns from the Paddock. On today's episode, we chat to the president of the Sheep, Bull and Goat Board, Stephen Tully. And we'll be chatting about exclusion fencing and also cluster fencing and the history of that great innovation. Anyway, whether you're on the back of a horse, on a bike or sitting at a desk, this episode is for you. So enjoy. Stephen, thank you very much for jumping on the Yarns from the Paddock podcast today. Um, before we get too far in the conversation, I just would like uh, for you to introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a bit more about your role and also the operation that you run. Yeah, thank you, Sam. I'm a uh, fifth-generation farmer, grazier out at uh, West of Quilpie. Um, the original family place is next door, so we've had a long history in here. Uh, I'm married with five fantastic kids. We run a sheep, goat and cattle enterprise and um, have been, all, all, as soon as I left school, I have been. So I don't know any other life, really. Very good. I think it's a it's a wonderful life raising kids in rural Australia. And, and it's one of those things, like I've got three young ones of my own. And I think it's probably one of the best things ever is raising children in, in the bush um, to see them grow up and be involved in the operation. Um, are all your kids currently are they back are they back involved in the business or have they gone out or, or or what are they up to? The middle child finished university uh, finished uh, boarding school last year, so we're halfway through the boarding school um, role, which is quite exciting. But two, uh, one's a builder and one's graduating as a nurse this year, and one just started uni and and uh, two are still at boarding school. So yeah, we're in the teenage years, which I I really enjoy. Um, school holidays, of course, are very busy. We've got our own little plane, and I and I move them around on the map and, and muster sheep and goats, which is uh, quite challenging at times, but always laughable later. Maybe not at the time, but certainly later. There's a lot of laughs. Yes. If we want to kick off around that conversation of the exclusion fencing, can you please? Chat to us a bit more about why the exclusion exclusion fencing came about and where it originally started from. So um, we all, all get excited about it, something new, but when we look back at the history, um, it's not something new at all. And there wasn't a lot of wild dogs out here um, or dingoes or whatever we want to prefer to call them. They're all the same animal. But um, back in the 1920s, the, the wild dogs followed the, the rabbits up as the rabbits uh, rapidly bred up and um, conquered most of Australia very, very quickly. They provided a big food source for the dogs and the dogs uh, bred up in enormous numbers and um, they then started to wreak havoc on the sheep industry. And so right through the 1920s, the government started schemes um, to help put up the, first of all, it was a rabbit fence and then that rabbit fence was topped with a dog fence to uh, control the dogs so that the sheep industry was um, was able to continue because it was wreaking havoc. The sheep industry as wool Wool being a non-perishable item was very important to this area. And this country that we are in is very, very good sheep and very, very good uh, wool country. For someone that's probably not as experienced as your area down there, what effects were the rabbits originally having on the country and, and what were they? What was the effects on producers? Well, the rabbits just came up in sheer numbers. So they ate everything um, in, in front of them. They just – and then, you know, we've just – got rid of some of the old rabbit traps. Every On those fences they built, every mile, because um, we're talking those days, there was a rabbit trap. And one was a seesaw rabbit trap and one was a funnel rabbit trap and they were patrolled every week. So that's how big a devastation they did. Oddly enough, they reached a certain number and then started to decline um, rapidly. 
and then myxomatosis came in and kept them reasonably under control. So, you know, that was one of those brief things. It was an enormous problem. It caused an enormous amount of investment. But, uh, yeah, as, as you know, in agriculture, you have one hurdle after the other and the, the second one is not obvious until sometimes right at the last minute. So after the rabbits, the dogs came. They they changed their appetite, as you as you said. They shifted from rabbits to to sheep and and everything else. How how did that change? And you did say they also the changing of the fencing. What was what what do they do through the exclusion fencing there to help? I suppose stop the dogs. Well, well the original rabbit fencing was the rabbit netting, which is like a four centimeter um, tight grid on the on the bottom, and they ran that along along some of the existing fences um, and built new ones as well, and. Some of them had boundary riders um, on them as well, which were employed by the government. Then they put the dog netting top on. So higher posts, a dog netting is about a seven or eight centimetre gap wire mesh, and they ran that along the top. So you had a six-foot high fence that the dogs couldn't jump under. And down the bottom, of course, the rabbits couldn't get under it, so the dogs couldn't get under it as well. So that that was the main defence and then trapping off that. Um, and obviously in those days there was a lot of labour, so they, they trapped a lot of dogs. Uh, these dogs were still an issue right up until the 50s and um, then they did a lot of aerial baiting and 1080 baits came out and um, there was a big emphasis on it and that pretty well got dogs under control. So through the 60s, dogs weren't a major issue. They were in some areas, but they weren't a major issue. Until the 70s, uh, the 70s floods washed down all the fences and because dogs weren't an issue, everyone thought we'd won that battle. Uh, a lot of those fences were never replaced and never fixed up. And um, we lived in ignorant bliss for about 15 years before the dogs sort of came in and became smarter and all of a sudden in the early 90s were becoming a major issue again. So during the 70s, like you said, the floods, we had big floods, damaged the fences and, and 90s. And due to the co- control measures that were in place, they did restrict their numbers before the 70s. So did everyone just switch off or, or what happened during that period and why, and why did they become something, I suppose, in the back of the mind no one's really thinking about anymore? They, they just weren't an issue. Um, I mean, I, I know my dad, when he first left school in the, um, uh, the, the late 50s, early 60s, he, he got a month's wage for trapping a dog. But by the time he's in his mid-20s, he never trapped a dog again for 25 years. So there was this whole generation that lost those skills, really. Um, it wasn't until the mid-90s we started rolling out dog trapping schools again and it was a lost art. So that's that's how much it changed. It's, it's Once they got on top of the dogs, the numbers got quite low. And, like, if you saw a dog, it was major news. Everyone spoke about it. Uh, the whole district knew. You know, it was number one subject for the week. Um, there was that, they were that rare, yeah. I know there was a few different economic climates changing during this period, but in in the 1990s, the dogs came back in. Um, the sheep, you know, sheep industry started getting heavily affected by it. What happened to the number of sheep during that period in the 90s? They they severely dropped. I think you mentioned. Yeah, so uh, in the wool boom, in uh, which crashed in sort of 89 and staggered there with a bit of bit of support until. It completely crashed, but we, we got up to about 17 million sheep, 16 million sheep in Queensland. Um, and, you know, that number had been there before. There were sheep right up to Mount Isa. You can still see some of the old fences up that way. But, boy, yeah, when those dogs came in, the wool, wool crashed. Sheep sheep collapsed right down until 2 million, only about three years ago with the, with the finalising of the drought. We were down to about 2 million sheep, and um, it was sort of – that's had a devastating effect on a lot of towns, you know, 
Blackall lost about 100 shearers. There used to be 100 shearers in Blackall. Or Mudderborough had 40-odd shearers or 50 shearers or something based in around there, and they went to zero. You know, a lot of these towns just got absolutely decimated. Quilpie had three to four continuous shearing teams there. They, they went down to a part-time winter-based team. So it's it really sucked the guts out of all a lot of communities, and there wasn't a lot of reason for people to come back. The the labour intensity required on on cattle was nowhere near as great, and some of this country is not great cattle country. You, you can't run the stocking density on cattle as you can for sheep, so the economics were really, really doubtful on cattle as well in some of these areas. So it, it were in a pretty bad way. You know, I remember um, four or five years ago, Quilpie had about 30 houses on the market. There's not that many houses in Quilpie, and now you can't get one to live in. You know, it's 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 amazing to see how bad it got before it started to pick up. How did things start changing or, or what made things start to change there, Stephen? Did they, who was an entrepreneur or that stepped forward and started, I suppose, bringing back these age-old ideas of the exclusion fencing? Who was one of those pioneers in that field? Well, we started with, um, you know, and this is part, had a lot to do with Ag Force, is we tried to get the baiting more coordinated and, and build up community baiting programs and roll them out over areas then roll them out over shires and then get those shires to roll one out after the other shire, after the other shire, and that that all helped, but it was still slowly losing the battle. And uh, there was a couple of, uh, Tim Williams is one fellow that just went and built his own fence and helped design it, Kent Peart built his own fence. Um, and then there's there's two companies, and, and I'll name them because they did a great job, Clipex and Southern Wire, with new sort of family-owned operations. They were very innovative. They were, they were out there looking to make their mark and beat up the uh, competition that hadn't really changed or done much uh, different for the last 100 years. And they jumped on these ideas and they designed products that enabled a fence to be built a lot cheaper and a lot better. And, um, yeah, and, and so and then Tim Williams was a fantastic because he just shared his journey with everyone. What he did, he shared. He shared all his mistakes. He, he um, told everyone the good things he did. He even talked about a lot of his figures. He put them out there in the open, which, you know, we owe a lot to those people that first of all start and then don't care about any criticism they may may have. They put it on the table and um, that built momentum. His his neighbours saw over the fence and uh, they wanted to get together and and fence in a group of uh, group of properties. Southwest NRM got involved. Um, the ex uh, Merway Mayor got involved. I remember being in a Southwest Ag Force meeting, and they wanted to let us support. And um, the Ag Force meeting, they did a presentation there, and it was such an abstract thing to put up a body corporate to build a fence around a around a whole heap of properties where everyone probably doesn't even get on all that well, and they're going to work cooperatively together and put a lot of money up front that none of them could afford to see if it could work. And um, I just remember saying at the time, I said. I've got no idea whether this would work or not, but what we're doing now isn't. So how about we give it a go? And um, that's where it started. And, and from that support, we got, um, it was an LNP government at the time. They did the first initial round of funding that started the fencing, that, that Morven cluster up. And I think a Tambo cluster followed soon after. And then there was a Corpy cluster. And every government that's come in since has seen it as a, as a fantastic community-based um um, thing to spend money on, and and it's you know it headed west. Like we're the first ones to make it in make it work in this low rainfall country, but it's headed to the trap rock and it headed to the central west. And then the Longreach Council got involved, and they got a a loan, uh, a treasury 
loan to let people build their fences and they paid it back by their rates over time. And all of a sudden the fences were exploding. And I remember the Rabobank guys from Longridge were telling me, this is the only thing we've ever had that the farmers underestimate the financial advantage of it. He said, he said, normally they'll always give us a better than real case scenario, but this fencing is actually better than what they think it is. And so um, with that, I mean, I remember doing my first um, speaking about it because I we got a grant through the through the round through the, from the state government uh, for three properties to fence in a cluster of uh, six hundred thousand acres of, of three different properties. And um, there was people saying that can't work. How can you justify that? And uh, we built that fence, and we built it. And now, at the moment, we only have one neighbour that hasn't fenced, but everyone's ever is fenced around him. So we're nearly fully double fenced in. All of our neighbours are fenced, and now now most of our neighbours' neighbours are fenced. And it was just people looking at it and looking over the fence and sharing the information and seeing the difference that it makes. It's it's fantastic for the town. It's fantastic for um, for for the confidence of my kids to come home if they do want to come home, you know, it, it's got something to come to. I remember my next door neighbour came to me and we didn't particularly get on um, all the best all the time and he said to me, I think we need to do this because the way it is at the moment, I don't want my son to come home. So, um, yeah, that's sort of that's sort of where we were at the time and it was in the middle of a drought and none of us could afford to do it, but none of us could afford not to do it either. And it's I look back on it and say, why did it have to get so bad before we realised that something had to be done? Um, but, yeah, we built that fence ourselves. So our section of that fence was 110 kilometres. Um, we had a fair few school holidays and a fair bit of building that fence and a fair bit of trial and error. got fairly good at it by the end of it. And, and look, most people did do that. That's how we yep. got there in the end. And it was actually interesting in the middle of a drought when things are really bad and you can go out and build a bit of new fence that you know is setting you up, that's that's a good mental health space. And um, I think that helped a lot of people through, yeah. It's always good getting that bit of labour out of the kids, uh, teaching them <laughs> life, life skills as well as physical. Um, Stephen, oh, like I'm, from, I'm from up near Huon Way here and I, I suppose we, we don't have as many uh, cluster fencing or exclusion fencing up this way. But going down towards the Longreach area where you do see the exclusion fencing starting to come, in, come into play a bit, it is amazing the difference in the country between the fenced and not fenced. And, you know, I know it's a mix of the wildlife management and everything else in between, but it, it, it's, it's a great difference that you can see. It's very stark contrast between the two sides of a fence. How much benefit was initially and, and and how quickly did they see the benefit for those initial cluster fences being set up in the area? Look, you, we found some benefit straight away. It was about one of it was how long it took to get the dogs out um, and a little bit of that is how long before it rains again as well. But being able to manage total grazing pressure as well as uh, predation just takes a lift an enormous weight off your shoulders and it just takes another of the variables completely away. Um, with those droughts and the enormous number of uh, kangaroos that we had going through at the time and moving from place to place or storm chasing or something like that. Um, I, I, I thought at the time, and I, and I think it's proven to be correct or even, even uh, better than what I thought, is that I would go into drought six months later and come out three months earlier because I can hang on to my feed and then when I do get a storm, I can manage that green pick and that little bit that grows up so that it grows into better feed and manage it on my stock rather than having the macropods move in from 100 or 200 kilometres away and just destroying that country back to bare dirt. So the result of that now is uh, 
you know, nearly well, seven or eight years on is that the amount of, you know, reptiles and ground-dwelling animals that we have is just unbelievable. Uh, even even birds, you know, we have brogas everywhere because they can now have a nest on a piece of grass that won't get chewed out or have a bit of uh, density there that uh, that the quails can run around in and not be spied on by the hawks. So it's actually pleasing every day to get less and less uh, bare ground and more ground cover and um, it's exciting to be part of watching all of that uh, rejuvenate. But at the same time, we're actually running more stock than I thought we could run. I just wanted to run the same number and do it better but we're actually getting more and more grass and we'll be able to run more stock in a better way uh, and be more productive. It's a really interesting point that you're messaging about the environmental impact there. And I think it's something that's probably not spoken about as much. There's a lot of talk around being increasing productivity, increasing the productivity of your, of your flock, but that environmental positive environmental impact isn't spoken about. So that's, that's really interesting. And I know. Has there any studies that have been done of the difference between a cluster fenced um, and non-cluster fenced area in terms of that? Look, in the beginning there was, but the problem is that a lot of these studies don't go more than for about three years um, because they can't get funding to go on going. So I think there will be over time. Um, certainly, I mean, <clears throat> anyone that does it sees it every day um, and there is monitoring sites and there is monitoring going on. But no, I haven't. I haven't seen overwhelming uh, evidence as you just to suggest it. But it's it is just so obviously there. Yeah, I've got a whole heap of little trial sites that I say, well, that never had grass on it ever, and and now it's got grass on it most of the time. So it's it's just filling in those little holes. Um, even on the feral pig side, it reduces the number of feral pigs. They'll still manage to get their way in there. But they, um, but we've got a lot less feral pigs. When we do get them in there, they're trapped somewhere, so you can eradicate them. Um, but the the amount of runoff that we get is so reduced. Uh, you know, I was warned by someone in the Augustella district in the beginning. He said, "Oh, you be careful when you fence. You won't. The first thing you'll notice is your dams don't fill, and that's a fantastic problem to have, isn't it? Because that water is growing grass, and uh, we can always run a bit of poly pipe and put down a ball, which we have, um, because the dams all of a sudden aren't filling anywhere near as well as they used to." Also, another thing that you mentioned was the economic benefit of the towns, the increases of having, I suppose, the, the industry coming back, the the shearers coming back. Um, how much have you seen locally around your area the benefit that the town has had? Yeah, like I was mentioning before, you, you can't get a house in Quilpie now. The, the, there's a baby boom going on. The, um, the If you look at the, the census, the average age in Quilpie has fallen from over 40 down to 38 in just three or four years. That, that's just an indicator of the younger people coming back or just wanting to stay when they raise their families. Um, you know, I was talking to one of the local merchandise people in, in Quilpie and they went from uh, having about a $400,000 turnover to a $4 million turnover. You know, it, that's just one example. Um, it, it's just it's just fantastic to see the growth and the happiness and the reinvestment. And the reinvestment is not just about building your fence. Once you have that security of your property, and all of a sudden that's when you put down your bores, that's when you run your poly pipe, that's when you're putting the other fencing infrastructure, your cattle yards, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it, it's just boomed in a whole heap of different directions. You know, I just see on Facebook there's a builder coming out to Corby. He wants to live there because obviously they go there and they see it as a prosperous area. And, you know, if you do that, that's what we're all crying out for, isn't it? Like, just people come back and say, oh, gee, this is a good spot to live. So it's, yeah, some fantastic things happening. 
I think that's something right across rural Queensland as initiatives like this cluster fencing and inclusion fencing are increasing in the areas and industries are being able to pick back up again. We are seeing towns benefit from that. And I know, you know, I'd hate to say it, but, you know, we know a drought's going to come by and everything's going to be tight again. But at at the moment, the way these ideas and, and, and these and exclusion fencing plays that rolls onto towns, rolls onto communities, and it makes it want to be a place that people can come back and live. And it's great to see, hear that, that, like you said, that's incredible going from 40 to 38, the average age in town. That's a dramatic jolt in age over a short period of time, which is great to see. And I think like that flow on effect, like there's schools increasing, there's people, other industries following on on that coming out, like you said, with builders. Um, how much has AgForce had to play in this space for the for, for the last, I oh know, what we, what we say, 80 years or so that this has been happening? How long has AgForce and what role has it been playing along the journey? Uh, like AgForce, well, it used to be UTA and Cattlemen's Union, but um, I, I first got involved just after the amalgamation and it became AgForce. But we've always been there. Um, I've always, because dogs affected me, I suppose, I was always primarily in that role and I've been in that role of different levels uh, right up until now. So, but, you know, initially organising those baiting programs to get together, uh, working with DNR, um, you know, you're on the barrier, we have a representative on the barrier fence board. Um, trying to make the poison regulations workable but enforceable. You know, all of those things, getting that information out on exclusion fences to landholders and doing those cost benefits and getting you know, people like Tim Williams to speak in front of a crowd so that they um, they could do it. We had bus tours around fences so that he could um, to to see what the different designs are and how people did it. And and a lot of our members were the ones that engaged first and then shared, shared with other people about what they've done. Um, the trapping of the dogs. Once you get the fence up, you got to get the dogs out. So we we had a lot of dog trapping schools that were still facilitated and still are facilitated by AgForce um, in certain areas. So it, it's all all AgForce is the glue that pulls it all together and gets the information out. We're lobbying uh, both state and federal governments. We're celebrating um, both state and federal governments. It doesn't matter what colour shirt they've got on. If they, you know, if they contribute. They do a fantastic job. And, and with this exclusion fencing, it has been all governments um, and, and we've been proud to celebrate that with them. So, yeah, we're always there at the moment. I'm on the sheep and wool board, so uh, the president. So we're, we're working with that and on EID to make sure that it's still right. So if we get this hurdle for the sheep and goat industry up and running and it's looking fantastic and the goats, goats are booming um, now behind this wire as well, but uh, the next lot of regulations isn't going to be a big setback and, and can be done workably and, and move forward. So it doesn't matter where we are or what we do. AgForce is not always out there, but it's certainly always behind the scenes working incredibly hard and sometimes we try and get out there as well. One of the last things I want to touch on today, Stephen, is I suppose people that currently don't have cluster fencing or exclusion fencing, what are some of the steps they can go about that and, and who should they really talk to for advice? Um, well, first of all, Q-Rider will, um, so that's the Queensland Rural and uh, Industry Development. Um, it, it, it does cheap money for your exclusion fences. It, it thinks it's a fantastic program as well and um, and lent money. I, it certainly lent money to me as to, to get my fencing going and it has done for a lot of people. Uh, but there is also state government um, still still cluster fencing being rolled out. Um, I, did, I think I saw in the budget there was another round, I'm not sure, but there's still money there. Um, 
contact AgForce. We'll put you in, in, in the best options at the time, whenever that you, you may choose, or even put you into contact with, with someone that's done it. So you can actually have a yarn about uh, what you can and can't do because um, you never really know until you start talking about it. And it's not about whether you do it or not because everyone's situation is different, but it's just about making having the right knowledge to make the right choices. I think that's a very good point there about reaching out to neighbours or something that currently do have exclusion fencing and they can tell you firsthand the benefits in your area. And I think agriculture, I know, I think we're changing a bit. I think we used to be a bit more close and didn't like to share too much what we did, but I think we're getting better about telling our story and sharing between ourselves and kind of cooperating, uh, coming together with, like you said, uh, some of us exclusion fencing working towards it. Um, is there anything else, I suppose, you want to drop drop in before we do wrap this up, Stephen? Talking around, I suppose, what's coming forward and coming ahead for for the sheep and for sheep and wool industry. No, well, with the sheep and wool industry, we we recognise the shortage of shearing of shearers, and you know that's that's a, another sign of success, isn't it? That we have we've got the sheep now, we don't have enough shearers to shear them. Uh, so we're certainly working on shearer training and trying to get more people involved. And there's a whole heap of little things there coming together um, to help that as well. Um, but then also, like I said, the EID and the national rollout and uh, making sure we've always got the best technologies and making sure that those situations are always um, just getting the practical sense into the regulation. Uh, that's You know, there's a lot of people sitting in offices think that a regulation is nice and pretty if it's this way, but when you tell them it's not going to work, it, it's not going to work like that and I get a lot of pushback and we try and try to be the conduit between the two. Um, yeah, so that's that's sort of what's taking a lot of our role at the moment. We're also in, you know, the carbon space, the ag care space, where we want to prove up our credentials. Like we're talking about the advantages once you do fence. Actually, how do we get some of that ground cover science and how do that that carbon um, sequestration science? How do we get that in an easy format that's not overly expensive and um, but but we can prove it up. So it's all of those little things. Those divide biodiversities um, can go into that space as well. So. Yeah, it's you never know what's around the corner. Uh, you can plan, but we're in. Um, whenever anything's there, we're in there and, and fighting hard. Thank you very much for your time today, Stephen. And um, yeah, I hope you have a great afternoon. Thank you, and thank thanks, Sam, for doing these podcasts. I think it's fantastic. I hope you enjoyed this episode from Yarns from the Paddock podcast. If you have. Be sure to share it with some friends and family and even throw us a review. It's the best way to get the word out there. Anyway, have a great day. Cheers.